Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and I'm so excited today to be joined by Tamara Lawrence to talk all about her latest film, The Silent Twins. And I wanted to start by talking a bit about the the initial research that went into this role, because I imagine it was a very in-depth process. The, the film's mm-hmm. based off of a book that Marjorie Wallace wrote, who was a journalist, but there's so many other facets of details that you would have had access to look into from mm-hmm. footage of the twins, the sisters, um, you know, some of their writing, which has influenced the film in a lot of ways and their words being Mm -hmm. used and so I was really interested in in how you approach the research process and how that really helped you in finding a window into this character and starting to understand her on an emotional level outside of the way that other people wrote and spoke about her. Yeah well exactly that I think you're bang on what was so useful about this process was um, one actually the film was postponed because of lockdown so we had a bit more time and so like the Tisha and the director and I sat and went through the, the book chapter by chapter and sort of um yeah discussed kind of what they were going through at the time pulled kind of details that we thought might be useful to help um add more nuance to the script um but then also yeah we we each spent that period compiling um sort of like verbatim quotes from from the twins as well so i I, from each chapter, like lifted interesting things that I thought Jennifer said or kind of um, transferred um, sections of her, her diary and her stories and stuff, which was um, exactly, as you said, really useful to get into the psyche of her and understand them and humanize them from the inside. And, and it was so useful to see actually the ways in which they were very much typical teenage girls going through kind of the normal angst of, worrying about being accepted, being cool, fitting in, um, the boys that they like, uh, what they're going to do with their lives, uh, which was just such a huge antithesis to the, the depiction of them in the media, which was of this kind of this, like, sinister, mystical, um, otherworldly kind of uh, twinship that for me before encountering this, uh, this audition and everything, I, I had them in my mind in folklore as as serial killers so it was like (laughs) completely um turned everything I thought about them on um on its head uh and yeah I think having the 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 verbatim diary entries they they essentially archived their entire lives it was that for me was the most invaluable resource to to really see the um the nitty-gritty of 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 every sort of high and low in in from Broadmoor especially, but from them being teenage girls in their room that were still playing with dolls. Um, and so, yeah, that, that was how um, we got into it. And then beyond that, we also had like a dialect coach and a movement coach that helped us to um, find the, the physical and, and sonic parity to, um, help us get more into like the twin body yeah and and you're talking there about you know they're teenage girls and they're playing with dolls and that's part of their their creative outlet in their imagination Mm -hmm. with one another and it's quite interesting because we do like you said we do see them go through some of the same experiences that other teenage girls go through but kind of there's almost like a little bit of a delay and a lag in things you know we see Mm -hmm. what does romanticism look like for them because they haven't experienced it because they have been in this bubble to a degree in a cocoon with one another 
Um, and so how did that inform elements of the character for you in terms of thinking about what are some of the experiences that she wouldn't have had that she would have if she was out there in the world socializing with everybody around her, but that mm -hmm. she still yearns for and wants to have an understanding of? Yeah, ex yeah, exactly. I think um, because of that cocoon that they lived in, for me, I, I understood them existing in these um, different extremes. On one end, there was like an infantilization because they were so um, detached from uh, community and their peers. They stayed longer in that sort of childlike state and used the dolls in order to kind of live out the lives that they didn't get to live. Um, and that's, that was actually the root of their um, of their journey into being authors as well. So the storytelling started from them creating these very in-depth biographies about each of their dolls and them all having families and interactions and, um, <laughs> and playing out kind of lives and deaths in, <clears throat> excuse me, in a sort of Sylvanian family-esque village that they created for, for their toys. But then on the other hand, there was um, melodrama. And I think because they existed so much in their imagination, every experience was was heightened, which I think the film does really well. It kind of creates this like sensory feast of color and sound, um, uh, which contrasts to, you know, how those scenes where we see them from the outside, where they're very silent and very still and moving in synchronicity. I think in, internally um, there was, they were, they were romantic, like high poets, um, <laughs> there was a bit in Broadmoor where um, Jennifer had a visitor and she sort of wrote in such intense detail kind of came reaching for the sugar and bringing how she was too nervous to bring the cup to her mouth and how um, she thought on the outside that she was giving a very coy smile and everything was um, everything was in HD and so I think yeah them existing in that sort of um, that in a very internalized bubble for me kind of it exploded itself into um these other extremes quite nicely and the silence in itself is really interesting because obviously it creates this real quietness it creates that cocoon and bubble that that we were just talking about and at the same time there's kind of a strength to it in holding their silence as a protectiveness against the world around them and the way that they've been treated and the way that they've been viewed um and so how did you want to go into finding those moments of silence with Letitia and really thinking about it in that real dichotomy of you know this is actually a strength and a power that they're wielding for themselves to protect themselves from the outside world and not necessarily the weakness that's being perceived by others yeah exactly I think that's a really um great point and question is that silence was a a, a pact and a protest that they made I mean the documentary you see June say you know we, we tried to speak but they didn't understand us and then we thought okay if they if they don't understand us now they you know they won't understand us ever um and so they use their sisterhood as a as a as a way of protecting their energy and so um yeah we lent into that by becoming um just like friends and familiar with each other and working together and every night to kind of um yeah find moments in which we could kind of add in the the looks with the eyes or kind of like the or kind of gestures with the pinky or things like that like these little motifs to show that we had something that was um 
just between us, which I think also contrasts quite nicely with those with the fights, which were also very true. Like there was intense love, but also intense kind of like vehement uh, hatred for each other at times as well. And um, and so that I, I think that balance is quite in the movie with these moments between the young companions of them just like tearing at each other's um, throats and I think it's important as well to have that in there to, um, for people to understand that they could speak they just chose they chose not to and I think um, that's an important that's an important distinction because I think it was their way of um, maintaining agency in a, um, a world that was otherwise in, in which they were otherwise at a disadvantage. Yeah. And you touched upon there that obviously it was this incredibly close bond between the two of them, full of love, but there was conflict as well. And, and with Jennifer in particular, um, you know, even though they're twins, she was the younger one by a few minutes. And, you know, I've, I've heard you kind of yeah. mention that you felt like there was a bit of jealousy that came from that. Was that something that you found in researching and kind of reading her writing and, and her mm-hmm. words? And, and how did you feel like you wanted that to play out in terms of the dynamic between the two of them? Because you do such a great job with Letitia of having these moments where it really does roll between those different emotions and in singular instances. Um, thank you. Yeah, it. Um, yeah, from the the diary entries, Jennifer spoke about twinship in such an interesting way. She had so many. She had such an interesting perspective that made me think, compared to my other like broader research around twins, about how dysphoric it must be to have someone that is an extension and reflection of you but also entirely not you, but also you share exact same DNA and how um, having someone at that close comparison to you must bring up so much about identity. And you know, Jennifer said things like, you know, um, Cain killed Abel. No twin should ever forget that. Um, which I think is such an amazingly powerful thing to say, actually. And, um, and she also said, you know, my real twin, is out there somewhere and she has my exact same rising time. You know, my, she was born at the same time, time as me. She likes what I like, you know, my real twin has no differences because in the space where there's differences, there is space for them to be compared and judged against one another. And they were very much in their youth when it came to kind of like um, uh, scholarly tests and, and kind of people testing whether how socially apt they were and, um, Jennifer always fared slightly worse and and she was younger and she felt like she spoke extensively about feeling that um, June was the prettier one um, which because Jennifer had like a scar on her nose but in the film what we did is I was wearing these sort of prosthetic teeth and there was like and so I sort of lent into um, a self-consciousness I guess I think Jennifer is spoken about in the media as being the more dominant one, but from reading her her diaries, I could just see that she was entirely insecure and that insecurity sometimes manifests itself in trying to put other people down in order to kind of like feel um, better about yourself. And, and so I really wanted to humanize her and in, in for people to see how kind of fragile and vulnerable she was. Um, which then became the catalyst for the volatility um, rather than 
sort of playing her as like a despot because then I think if you don't care about her you don't feel the lot you don't feel any sense of loss you just think oh poor June is free now from this terrible person that's been ruining her life for almost 30 years I think it was important to see um love as a as a thread in this movie I felt and so that's what I tried to kind of think through like what are the ways in which I love her what are the ways in which my love um, is toxic and and with a lot of the dialogue in the film you know there is this extreme silence but there are moments where they do talk to other characters you know there's the moment when they're teenagers and there's the guys that they really like and they start talking a little mm-hmm. bit there's the moment where you know Marjorie a character in the film as well as a journalist comes into Broadmoor and becomes someone that they do feel comfortable and they do trust enough to speak in front of and so mm-hmm. for you how did you find the the way in which something felt justified enough for her to say anything because when someone doesn't speak much when they do it means so much yeah exactly I think the with the boys it was um about intoxication or is it was like that was also the first time they got high and you know the first time um that they had sex and things like that and I think it was about um yeah being intoxicated not just kind of like with substances but with with lust you know kind of like that thing that comes over you when you start to like someone it was a period of newness Um, and also it was a a way not only I think the substances like helped them to lose inhibition in their inhibitions but also it was um, a way in which they were accepted like sex as a vehicle to community um to to intimacy and to connection and so I think that was ultimately what was the barrier in the first place because of the bullying and the moving around and they, they didn't feel connected to anyone and safe enough to be um vulnerable which I think that that summer with the boys um gave them but also you know Marjorie coming in and saying like if I were to tell your story how would it begin and I think um also that sense of being listened to like having people having someone in Marjorie that understood them and understood the scandal and the injustice of what was happening to them and um felt compelled to tell it and Marjorie worked very hard like to she stayed up every night for years transcribing their diaries uh, into um onto I think what was the typewriter she said in those days or 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 any and by hand in some passages to make sure that their all of their work was understood and archived so that she could kind of um have the point in the perspective from which to 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 um to write the articles and to um to build a case uh, in defense of of what was happening to them. Um, yeah so I think that I think that's those are the reasons why they felt comfortable enough to speak to those people. And, and going back to what you were talking about when when it is the intoxication of, of substances, one of the scenes that I really love is that moment where it's the two of them walking through the underpass. And then yeah. it kind of breaks into this moment of choreography because it feels like it's that that marriage between the imagination and, and the way that we've seen their stories were represented on screen and things inside of them, but also yeah. the realism with the concoction of everything in that moment. Um, mm-hmm. And so I wanted to ask about finding the right tone for a moment like that, which marries those two sides, but also just the choreography of that coming together uh yeah that was that was actually the last 
scene we ever shot, which is very special. Um, and I think the vision for that came through, well, obviously it's a very fantastic director that very much um, understood the necessity of these sort of, um, uh, or, yeah, of these sort of larger than life moments and how it was necessary to include their uh, anim imagination as a motif throughout the whole piece. Um, that married with the 80s soundscape and um, our amazing kind of composers and everything. And then the choreographer we worked with, a lot of our movement work was also through dance. And so we spent a lot, lot of time kind of um, getting into the, the dance moves of the, of the era and would use that as actually Leticia and I as a way to kind of like um, get into the rhythm with one another in preparation for the day or for certain scenes. And so, um, yeah, we understood that moment as a sort of, um, as, as elation, sort of post-coital, post-friendship, kind of the, the, uh, a way of um, uh, visually depicting the, the high and the adrenaline of this first experience. And so, we understood that as a kind of what was happening in the, the piece, but otherwise, yeah, we got we got into it through dance, and there was a yeah, there was a whole big choreography from like obviously that scene has been edited, but it was a whole um, thing, and yeah, it was it was really enjoyable. I think we understood that moment as one we can lean into as fun, and actually, it being in towards the end of the second act, as it were, one of the kind of the last almost kind of potent moments of fun that we see them have before it descends into the sort of Broadmoor section. And so, yeah, it was a very um, important scene that we all uh, yeah, just worked really hard to enjoy. And with the movement overall, what, what was the initial starting point of you and Letitia working together with a movement coach? Because it's such a fascinating connection that you have to have in terms of being scene partners with one another, because it's not about waiting to re react and respond to what the other person's doing. It's not even looking at each other and having to create the same moment together, you know, even just silently, you know, picking up crisps at the same time and kind of tapping them together and then eating them at the same moment without making mm. eye contact mm. um yeah so that those bits came from um different things so the the movement with the, the movement in terms of the synchronicity actually a lot of was was inspired by the younger twins and so Kaya worked the the movement choreographer worked with um Leah and Ava first and um, spent time kind of helping them to get into this um, synergy and using kind of like pace as a way understanding almost in like a very Bhutto-esque um, practice like using slow movement as a way in which to kind of allow yourself time to feel your partner in the peripheral vision but also to create a a sense of unity from the outside if you're moving slow enough nobody can tell who's leading and so I think that was the sort of offshoot and so we watched a lot of the little girls work and then we did that ourselves and obviously physically Letitia and I are quite different but we worked we used portrait we used music and dance to kind of 
um, sort of find a language in which we eventually landed in a kind of the same space to understand that maybe the things we need to do in our bodies are also different in order to find um, the, the similarity, like maybe I need to put my shoulders back, but maybe the teacher needs to hunch her thing forward and then that makes us look more similar because obviously we have quite diff different statures. Um, and so there was, there was things like that, but then also the moment as you um, picked up on with the crisps came from a documentary that Tish and I watched about twins um, in, it was like Hungary or something like that. They'd be really interesting twins. One of them was an artist um, and uh, the other was quite unwell. And they, they had this really, they had this really strange, <laughs> they had this really strange relationship in which like they, um, they refused to like dress alike or anything like that. They thought it was like silly when twins did that but they were really, really catty and quite infantile and would kind of like pick fights with each other in the most kind of ridiculous ways. But um, one of them had anorexia and because she didn't want the other sister to kind of, um, because yeah, the, the sister that didn't have anorexia didn't want her, her sister to lose too much weight. So they had this pact where they had to eat the exact same amount of things. And so, like, that's where we got the whole kind of thing with, like, the peas and the milk and, like, the girls having the same amount of everything. We watched that and we thought, oh, this would be interesting to, to layer into our film. And oh, Jennifer and June did do things like this, but it was interesting seeing it in another pair of twins, like this, this, um, yeah, watching them literally break Chris up to the exact same thing or kind of get one plate of food at a night out and dinner and split it exactly in half um, so that they were always eating the exact same thing and one of them would never be heavier or lighter than the other. Um, yeah, and so kind of that, it was also the broader research around twins in general that gave us some of those nuggets. That's so interesting. And and when it, when it came to the moments of transitioning in and out of the silence and the stillness, um, it's quite interesting because it's not the moment that someone walks in, they just freeze in whatever motion. There's kind of almost a beat as they kind of cocoon together and mm -hmm. kind of focus in on each other or just look down and look directly away from anything around them in their peripheral vision. Mm -hmm. And was that something that came from the movement coach watching the younger performers or was that something that you and Letitia found? Um, that was something that came from our director, I think, actually. She, she said it was important for them not to become statues there was still like a life an inner life that was working and there was a decision that was being made in every moment to kind of become mute or become still and I thought and then also um underneath that obviously Letitia and I were working to layer in this sort of idea of checking in with one another and so like that it was useful to be um <clears throat> to not have to kind of uh suddenly morph into into mannequins but to understand that at every moment there's a sort of somebody is taking the lead and so yeah is it you know we go we suddenly go slow we suddenly go quiet and then you look to me and I look to you and who's leading this time okay and what are we doing are we okay are we okay and you know and just having that that um unspoken language that came from all of these years of pact and um and familiarity it's so cool that you noticed that. <laughs> Very astute. Thank you. These are really cool questions. Thank you. 
course. I also wanted to ask about, you were mentioning before a dialect coach that you were working with as well. And I was interested in whether that was specifically working with them on, on the affectation and, and the way of speaking, because you have taken, you know, you've, you've kind of like mastered the accent and have a very specific tone and intonation in, in the dialogue along with Letitia, or if it was about, you know, working with a dialect coach in terms of language as a form of their communication and the way that they speak with one another in this secret language. Um, yeah, it was a it was a bit of both, but probably predominantly the former. Um, Hazel Holder was our dialect coach. Really, really amazing, amazing detailed work. She used the um, the documentary to uh, essentially break down every. She transcribed everything that June said in that entire documentary, and then broke down every line into tone, um, pace, range. Um, so we understood the a kind of framework within which they spoke um, and how uh, I think our, di- our dialect was broken down into sort of into private, public. Um, there were a few categories. So we understood like the ways in which our language might be, have more range when we speak to one another uh, compared to when we speak to um uh, to other people, the influence of also kind of like the West Midlands and and uh, the Barbados Barbados in there as well. Um, certain vowel sounds, um, yeah. Hazel kind of was just so excellent at, at um, fine tuning all of these things. So that we and then we yeah we worked with her off this database she created um, for us that was entirely rooted in 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 June's actual speech. And when it came to to playing this role, you know, you're playing this character over the course of being a teenager until the age of about 30. So it's several years. And in particular, the the, the parts of the movie that take place once they've been institutionalized at Broadmoor. Um, I was interested in what the challenges were in creating that sense of emotional fractures and deterioration, but in a way that's not completely linear. It's not the moment that they're placed there that everything breaks down. Um, You know, we do see moments of light. We do see moments of joy in them. You know, you see them going to a dance and and trying Mm -hmm. to kind of make the most out of every situation around themselves still. The dynamic with Marjorie, which pulls them out of one another. But essentially Mm -hmm. you're carrying your character to a point where she's saying, I think I'm gonna die and it's okay. Um, mm. And I thought that was a really fascinating non-linear arc to have to create over the course of several years in about half the movie. And so what were the mm. challenges that came with that? Um, yeah, I think the honoring the, the, the length of time was a, was a challenge to try and understand how do you show, as you say, yeah, how do you show 11 years and half an hour? And, and, and essentially you, you can't. You can just you just have to sort of um, get the get the essence of every scene, the heart of every scene across in just in that in that moment as much as possible, which I think then speaks for itself, as you say, in this sort of like cyclical thing of where are they in the cycle? Are they fighting? Are they enamored with one another? And um, uh, yeah, it, I think for me, I wanted to make sure that by the end it felt like she had like a weight that something was more um yeah that something had sort of like gone past the point of of return and it speaks a lot in the book about 
Jennifer being quite ill in those last, like throwing up and not yeah not taking food and stuff in the in those last um, months in 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 Baltimore. So I think yeah, it was hard to kind of yeah to honor the honor the cycle and not not lean into the the victimhood of the situation, but to understand that they were trying to live as much as possible to find so so those moments of you know wanting that even though it's harrowing and disturbing and kind of funny but those moments of yeah wanting a partner wanting a life partner wanting the father of your child in even in someone like Broadmoor is um something that we might find hard to hard to understand but for them it was them trying to make the best of their circumstances um and so yeah so sort of playing oh, against the, the somberness of everything um but also at the same time it was it was difficult because it was very disturbing and upsetting personally but also yeah trying to um play sensitively things like being sedated or um or being in isolation and um the research around that and understanding how that um how that messes with people's heads like being alone being being separated not only from your twin but in you know not really seeing anyone for for long periods of time and Jennifer spent a lot of time they spent most of their time in Broadmoor apart actually um on different wards and Jennifer spent more time in isolation than um than June because she was um rebelling a lot more as the as the years went on and then amidst all of that they were also you know there was also their trial that we kept being postponed 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 of, of when they were going to be released um and so yeah I think honoring the kind of the reality of what, what was happening to them whilst trying to be succinct and to the point with every scene that we had in Philip Moore was was um was challenging but I think the director um obviously knew, knew what she was doing and knew how she, knew how she wanted to um carve the story to allude at the very least to the extent of what they were going through but obviously the film doesn't touch on even the heart of it unfortunately yeah I mean it, it's such a fascinating role in terms of everything that it required of you as a performer and as a scene partner working with Letitia so it's been really fascinating to hear so many of the details about everything that went into that thank you so much Tamara really appreciate it thank you Mara it's been so good to talk to you great interview. thanks so much